Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, everybody. We're just about uh, less than an hour away from spring. Yeah, we're about there. So 11.33, somebody told me on the way in. So I thought at 11.33, why, we just might stand and holler hallelujah. And a couple of things before we uh, address the text, which is the 15th chapter of the book of Proverbs, just one verse, verse 29. Um, one of the young ladies are that goes here to church has had some problems with breast cancer and other problems for several years lisa sparks and she's leaving today to go back to houston they found another lesion and um, and so they're going to freeze that lesion and hopefully that'll just take care of it the the big word for it is more than i can pronounce but that's what it boils down to they'd actually quick freeze them and um, hope that that takes it kills it so keep she's she will have the procedure at 7 30 tomorrow morning at uh, anderson a.e anderson uh hospital in houston seven o'clock seven or seven thirty in the morning it's early um, so i wanted you to put lisa on your prayer list if you would um I need to address the fact that Kentucky got beat in the NCAA. <laughs> there's, per, there's perfectly a good reason for that. And it's really, I, I didn't, it didn't, wasn't clear until after the game was over. And the Lord just made it clear for me. You see, we've invited Oscar Shidway, the, their center, the only one who played a game. He scored like 30 points. The rest of them didn't even show up. And now, since we've invited him to come here, he won't be playing, and he can come. So, no, thank the Lord. <laughs> I, I would rather have him here than for them to win the NCAA, to be honest with you, for the very selfish purpose, because he's not. And, and the sad thing about it is he had gone to a lot of trouble to try to get his mother to come in uh, from the Congo to see him play, and, and uh, he's not going to be playing. And that, that's the only sad part of it. The other part of it we have fun with, but I hope he does come here. The, uh, we checked with the preacher where he had been. There's, uh, he had uh, uh, spoken at a, at a Baptist church on Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, and the Sunday morning that he spoke, there were like 300 kids standing outside the door to see him. He, he really is a fine young man. And he loved, and the preacher told me, he said, he, he, he preaches the same way that he plays, with intensity. So I, I think it would be, I hope you'll continue to pray that he gets the, that he'll answer and, and show up here. It would be a real blessing. One of the young fellows that's here this morning told me he would almost wet his pants to get to see him. So that, yeah. Well, that's the life it is. Okay, let's look at our text here because it, it really has to do with does God answer everybody's prayer? And I've heard people say, oh, yeah, he answers all prayers. He'll either say yes, no, or wait a while. 
I, I want you to know ahead of time, I don't accept that. The problem is, it's not what the Bible teaches. And my commitment through life has always been, if I don't have book, chapter, and verse to support it, your opinion is as good as anybody else's. We hear what we're about is, can we help you see what God says about it? And then it's our responsibility to accept it, even though it may, not, it may make us a little uncomfortable. So, so what I've done is I've put together a list of questions because I've learned from, I've got three kids study law, and I've learned from them that, you, that in a courtroom you get to the truth by asking the right questions. And you try to get away from the truth by asking the questions the wrong questions to get you to think in the wrong direction. And that's why you have uh, two lawyers in a courtroom, one trying to pull you one way, one trying to pull you the other. And so I'm trying to put the questions together that will lead us to understanding what the Bible says about who God is, who we are, and what happens when people pray. So you can ask the wrong questions and come to some really interesting conclusions. For instance, if you men were asked this question, when did you stop beating your wife? How would you answer it? Because the assumption is that you've been beating her, even though you may not have been. So you can ask the question that will infer the wrong answer. When you're trying to, I had I, uh, my boss one time, a preacher up in Illinois where I was a youth minister, Tom Thurman. We'd been fussing around about something. I don't remember just what it was. It didn't amount to much because we were really just having fun. And he finally looked at me and said, You know, as an outsider, what do you think of the human race anyway? You guys aren't really awake, are you? That's, you know, asking the right questions lead you to the to the proper conclusions and that's what we've tried to do here and so and and so we have to we have to figure out who we are how god views us not just how we view him unless our view is taken directly from the scriptures that's that's critically important the um and so we're going to try to clarify a few things about answered and unanswered prayer first question we have to ask is, you know, let's look at this text that, that kicked this subject off. It says this, verse 29 in the book of Proverbs says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So it's important for us to understand who is, who is classified among those who are wicked and who are the righteous. Because whether he hears and answer our prayer or not is directly related to, in this passage of Scripture, to who they are. In the Old Testament, wicked people were, were generally those who did not acknowledge that the God of creation in the Bible is, is recognized and worshipped. Anything beyond that worships something else. And idolatry, whether in the New or the Old Testament, was viewed as, as an act of wickedness. And so who your God is has everything to do with how you're identified in Scripture 
as being righteous or wicked. In the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, everything was referred to the nation of Israel after Abraham came, was recognized and, and started the nation of Israel. And before that, it, it, it gets a little dicey. <clears throat> but we have to understand that, uh, that wickedness in the Bible is not always related to wicked activities. We have a tendency to say a wicked person is a person who does wicked things. But in the Bible, that's not always, that doesn't cover the whole area here. Wickedness in the Bible can be an individual who has had the opportunity to accept Christ and doesn't because he wants to continue his selfish living. I want to do what I want to do, and if I become a Christian, I have to quit doing this, this, and this. And wickedness is when you realize to the extreme that God has gone to to take care of the sin problem, and you've rejected it. So it takes not just behavior, but also thinking. Because God, the Bible teaches that God doesn't look just upon our activities. He also looks upon the heart of the individual. You and I are, are, are stuck with being able to deal with what we can see in people's lives. God looks deeper than that. The Bible says that, that everybody falls into an area that is potentially wicked because in Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul had put together an argument about who needs Jesus. He said, you know, there, here are the Jews who were given the law and, and they broke everyone, and every one of them broke the law. Therefore, they're sinners. That's the Old Testament Ten Commandments and other laws that were given. And then there are those who did not have the law, but God spoke to their conscience, and they still denied. And so they're sinners. The conclusion in Romans 3.23 was, Therefore, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everybody falls into the category of being a sinner. But then there are those who have accepted Christ who are sinners who have been forgiven. And those, then there are those who are sinners who have not been. And those who have not been are, are described in Scripture as, as falling into the category of the wicked. And, uh, and why is that being true? Because... Since all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, what, what does the word sin mean? Sin means that it, it is knowing what, it, well, the scripture, I'll quote it, he who knoweth to do good, whether you're a Christian or not, he who knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So there, the, the, the definition of sin in the scripture makes it such that none of us have an excuse. We're all sinners some are forgiven. Now, the beauty of the, of the forgiven sinners is this, and people stay away from this, but I wish they wouldn't. Because forgiven sinners in the Scripture are called saints. Now, understand the word saint is never singular in the Bible. So there's no such thing as Saint Scott. That would be nice, but it doesn't work that way. It is the word saint is always a reference to the body of believers and not an individual so that no one will stand out. Because the only person that stands out, if you understand the Scripture in the New Testament with the church begins, the only one that stands out is Jesus. 
The rest of us all fall into the category of the saints. Now, the word saint comes from a Greek word, hagiazo. That's the Greek word, the, the verb form of the Greek word, which means that these are individuals that have been set apart because the word hagiazo that is translated saint, uh, saints literally means the set-apart ones. That's the literal meaning of it. Set apart for what? You and I have been, as saints, have been set apart by God by giving us the Holy Spirit who equips us to represent Him. The only representation God has other than the, than the heavens declare His handiwork, so on and so forth, is you and me. It is our responsibility to reflect to the world the God that we serve. That's by attitude, behavior, so on and so forth. But sin, by its very definition, separates us from each other and from God. That's the nature of sin. Because, now follow my logic here. Here's the word sin that means, okay, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Because the, pic, the word picture for sin is a, a guy we either with a javelin or a bow and arrow that shoots at a target and it falls short. So sin is falling short of the, of the will and the glory of God. And all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Scripture says. But it also says that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Now then let's define death. The word death literally means separation. That's exactly what it means. And, and they chose that word, the word thanatos, the Greek word thanatos means separation. So what does, what does sin that leads to death do? It separates us from God and each other. And, 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 the, the, and it starts just, the Bible starts off that way. We got Adam and Eve in the garden who have an intimate relationship with the living God on a daily basis. God would come to them. They'd finish their work. Their, their job was to prune and keep the garden. And so God would come in the cool of the day and there would be intimate intercourse with, with the God between heaven, between Adam and Eve and their family and, and, uh, and the living God. But when Eve, and see, that's what Adam said, when God approached Adam and said, hey, what's going on here? And Adam says, he knew immediately what the problem was. And he said, like all the rest of us, he said, it's the woman you gave me. It's that woman, you know. And, and uh, so, but what happened as a result of that, that, that intimacy with, with their creator was destroyed because Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden and the garden itself, was, which is called the paradise, the, the, the paradise and the Garden of Eden were, were, were similar. So paradise was taken and, and put in Hades, because in Hades, that's another subject. But when Jesus died, you remember, he said to the repentant Jewish thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Paradisios is, this, is the way the Garden of Eden is described, and it's where, in Jesus' day, the righteous went to before the resurrection. After the resurrection, because Jesus went and preached to those in prison, in paradise and in uh, Tartarus, in Hades. And then when he came out of the grave, he took those in paradise back to heaven with him. So today when you die as a believer, you go 
be with Christ in heaven itself. Now, with that, that all said, the point, the real point that needs to be made is this, that sin leads to death. Adam and Eve were not, would not have died unless they had sinned. That sin that led to physical and spiritual separation from God. And, uh, and that's what death is, physical death, is what happens. This old body dies, and we're separated from each other and from it. It goes back to the ground where it came, and if you're a Christian, your soul goes to be with Christ. But the point here is sin separates. Sin separates. And once we're separated from God, and since all have sinned in some court of the glory of God, we're all separated from God, and, and, we are in, and, and, and since God cannot look upon sin, we're all unrighteous. There's none righteous, the Romans said, not a single one. So the unrighteous have no access to God. So the only alternative is, how do we get into the category of the saints or the righteous so that we now have the intimate relationship with God restored like it was in the garden? And that's why the New Testament is referred to, the gospel is referred to as good news. Because it tells us of what happened when God intervened in history that made it possible to renew that intimacy with God. We're told in the, at the New Testament church when it started where two or three are gathered together, there's Christ in the midst of them. Oh, it's an act of faith to be sure. So the question we have that has to be answered here, does, God, does, does anyone, just because you're alive and kicking, does anyone deserve for God to listen when they pray? The implied answer is what? Since we've all sinned and shown, come short of the glory of God? No. He may be able to hear it, but he doesn't have to pay attention to it. Now, now those of you who've been married for a long while understand that. Did you ever have a wife cooking in the kitchen, talking like 90 miles an hour, and you don't listen to a word and don't, don't intend to hear a word she says? Just let her yak and just hurry, hurry up and fix me something to eat. Men have a tendency to be that way. And, uh, and when women find that out... Uh, we pay for it in other ways, but we'll not go there. That's a different subject. But you know what I'm talking about. There can be talk being made without anybody listening except the talker. And that's what happens to people when they pray. You know, I, I, I was researching different people, and, and, I, and I, know, I know of individuals who have said, I want nothing to do with Christianity. Zero. I'm committed to uh, a, a, a philosophy in our world that says there is no God, there is a closed universe, and there's a natural cause for every effect which eliminates the necessity for a God. And, and so, and, and we have, and you'd be surprised at this possibly, but most of the of the major well-known seminaries, preacher training schools of the world have adopted that philosophy. And the three most influential theologians when I was in school, all their names all started with a B. There was Bruner, Bart, and Bultmann. And all of them were really influential 
from the 19, early 1900s all the way up until now. And, and I went to a, a liberal seminary at Vanderbilt, and, and Rudolf Bultmann, his book was Required Reading. And in that book, Bultmann says, anything that is called a miracle in the New Testament or the Old Testament is either a myth or a legend or a lie. Absolutely eliminates miracle. Well, now, once you've eliminated miracle, you've eliminated the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection's not true, we're of all people miserable and our preaching is empty. In vain is the word to use, which means useless and empty. Because what we believe is that God penetrated the physical universe in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came into the world to, to help us deal with the problem of sin. And he perfectly carried out his requirements. Now, let's keep on going here because time is a problem. Because uh, we have to quit here in a minute and holler hallelujah. So, second question. The first question then, does anyone deserve for God to listen to them just because of who they are? And the answer is no. answer is no. Now, our world doesn't buy that. The, 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 the person that I was thinking of a while ago that I was reading about just a couple of weeks ago who had done away with, and yet she continues to say, I continue to pray. Who's she praying to? She's denied the, the truth of the Bible, so who's she praying People pray all the time. But does that mean just because they pray that God is obliged to listen and answer? And the answer is obviously no. He isn't. God sets the standards we don't. Now, secondly, who are the wicked that God chooses to ignore? Who are these, these the wicked people? A quick answer is this, and, and you can find more about that. The Scripture attacks that subject in several different places, even here in the book of Proverbs. And the, uh, uh, he, he talks about that uh, kind of thing here in the Bible. He said, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law or doesn't listen, doesn't, he's talking to the Old Testament people here now, and the law means the Ten Commandments plus some other things that God, that's in the Bible. It says this, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law or doesn't listen to the Word of God, it's what it boils down to, even his prayers are detestable. So you understand this. God has made it very clear there are those that I will listen to and those who I won't. He establishes those standards. Now, our world takes great offense to that. And before we're through here this morning, we'll, we'll nail what one of those areas where they're, I'm offended by that. Christians are arrogant. They think they're the only ones who have access to God. You'll keep on going. Wickedness, as I've said before, are all of those who reject God and His will. I'm talking about the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth. Anyone who says, my way is better than His way, and I'm going to do what I want to do, 
is viewed by God as being a part of the wickedness of a world that is against him. And that's most of the people on the face of the earth. And that, should that surprise you? It shouldn't because the New Testament specifically says, and Jesus is talking here when he said, the way to damnation is wide and easy. But the way to salvation is narrow and hard, and few will find it. Now that's what Jesus said. The way to damnation is a highway. The word way in the scripture is a, is a short reference to what we ended up calling a, a highway. And, and so he's saying that the highway to hell is easy. There aren't many. But the, but the road to heaven is full of difficulties. It's not easy to be a consistent Christian and to stand up both by behavior and attitude against the false teachings of the world. It isn't. That's why we need each other to encourage each other. And when one of us gets into trouble, offer a helping hand rather than a foot on the neck. So, who are, the, who are those that are, very, are, are viewed as wicked? It is those who stand against God, whoever they are. And Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. So it boils down to making that determination. And that's not a popular position to take. Now, the next one is, are there guidelines in the Bible for an effective prayer life? And here again, I think it's wise to go to what Jesus is actually teaching himself here in the Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, and this subject here is about prayer. And he's talking to people that fall into the category of God's people. He's talking to the Jews, and specifically, he's talking to his disciples in this particular passage. The Sermon on the Mount was directed right at his immediate followers, it's available for us as well. And he's talking about when these are believers who are, who are uh, citizens of Israel, who are Jews, and, and the Jews are God's chosen people. So he's talking to those folks when he says, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. That's, this passage of Scripture is the one reason why I'm not a great fan of long public prayers. Because they have a tendency to become a performance. And so I think public prayers should be as short as you can make them and still speak the truth and get on with it. Why? He said, I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full by being recognized. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. We've had people come here ever since the church started back in 1970. We've had people come here from other congregations. We have Pentecostal people who come here and say, Well, uh, why don't you all have uh, uh, why, why don't you all have prayer in, in tongues in the public service? I said, They're not supposed to be in the public service. They're supposed to be in your prayer closet. Now, in your prayer closet, as far as I'm concerned, you can stand on your head and spit nickels. It's none of my business. 
That's between you and God. But in the public service, anything that's a show-off, we're opposed to. Anything that causes attention to any of us and it isn't directed toward our God as revealed in Christ Jesus, we try to stay away from if we can. Stay away from, and because when the church first started, we had testimonies. We used the Seventh-day Adventist building up on 27th Street. And I remember when it, it, the testimonies got out of hand, and that can happen. Uh, let me illustrate how. If you had been a street walker, a prostitute, and you've been saved and you have a tendency to start naming names, don't you think it's probably need to be cut off? So, and so you can understand why we made the decision that, 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 that we're going to have to stop that. So, uh, and when we did, you'd be upset. I mean, we had people get upset. Why? Because they didn't get any recognition. And we all want to be recognized. Now, that's a, that's a natural thing that we all have in us. He says, you go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, if you pray in secret and God acts, he gets the glory. If we pray in public and he acts, the prayer has a tendency to get the glory. And the purpose of prayer is for God to be honored and glorified, not us. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that, that, that they will be heard because of their many words. I don't like long prayers. We prayed last night publicly for Lisa. She was here. The only thing we want done is for her to get well. That doesn't take a lot of words. Say it. Get behind it. Get it behind it. Do not be like them, for, you, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So why should we ask? Because it's an indication that we have faith in Him. So we need to ask. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. Now, I, lay, I laid out uh, about six different things here that, that are associated with prayer in the Bible that you need to look at. In Acts 4.31, uh, we read a passage of Scripture here of where the early church was getting together. Peter had gotten in trouble for preaching on the, in, uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead and he was up next to the temple, the Jewish place, and, and, uh, uh, and, and they told him, you get out of here, you're not allowed to preach up here anymore, get going out of here, don't, I don't want you to preach anywhere in the name of Jesus. And, and the scripture says that, that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And, and I think, Lord, I wish you'd do that again here. Just shake us up a little bit. We're too relaxed we need a good, solid, swift kick occasionally to get, to get us up and with it. So after they had prayed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the Word of God boldly. Boldness is something that we need as believers. I'm not talking about speaking down to people, but I am talking about being willing to speak up about who we love, who He is, and what He's done for us. 
So boldness is, is, is where we start here because he's given us, if you're saved, if you have been forgiven, you have received the Spirit of God in your body. And you have available to you the power of God to give you the boldness needed to speak up for what we believe. Then in the book of, of James, it, he deals with that same subject because the book of James is kind of the New Testament book of Proverbs, if you can view it that way. It, it is really kind of proverbial. And, and James is saying, it starts in the first chapter, he said, Hey, do any of you lack wisdom? All you have to do is pray, and the prayer of faith, God, see, He really wants to answer your prayer, and He and and He He will give you faith, and He'll give you wisdom. But you act on this pray, faith. Faith means that you believe that God is, and that He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. That's faith is that simple belief, and the word for belief and faith is the same Greek word. The Greek form, the verb form is pistuo, which means just what I said. Then it is, it is obvious when you look at what the Bible says about the prayer of faith. It's in the fifth chapter of the book of James. And in that particular case, he's talking about people who are particular, those who are sick and have a problem. He said, and, and, and the prayer of Offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. And if they've had and if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. This this prayer of faith, he says, "Look, is any sick among you?" And I, you know, Jesus was a great physician, so I'm not opposed to physicians, but I know the power of prayer. I I have seen it happen in a way that would that was shocking to me. And would be shocking probably to most of you. If this has been many years ago. I got a call from parents saying, our daughter is dying. Would you come and pray for her? She happened to be in Lexington in a hospital. Did you ever, have, have any of you ever had the weight of the presence of the Lord pressing down on you? It is something that you can sense that is real. It, it is just a, a heaviness. And all the way there, you know, that's all that was on my mind. It almost moved to tears when you didn't have anything to cry about. And when I got to the hospital, I knew what I had to do. I went to the room where the little girl was lying, and I asked the family and friends, because they'd all been called together. They do that when people are, are afraid, to, you know, death is, in, is imminent. And so I asked him if they'd leave, and I prayed with the little girl for several minutes. And I knew then, I knew then that God had done something magnificent. She lived, I don't know, another 20, another 20 years. And, uh, and when you know that God has used you, it may not shake the room, but it'll shake you. And that I, I actually experienced what had happened there. And the Bible says that this is what we should do. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. And they'll pray for you. Now, the church has messed this up some through the years 
especially our Pentecostal brethren, and, and they'll say if that person's not healed, they didn't have faith. The Bible doesn't say it's their faith. It's the prayer of the people who are doing the praying that counts. The, the, the responsibility comes back on those of us who are elders in the church. It's not that poor soul lying there that's sick. Because it then it goes ahead and said, and the prayer of those righteous people, God will hear. And he'll raise him up so he can go out. And, and we've had people here, I, I think of, of Catherine Apel, she had breast cancer. She came to us immediately. I don't know if she'd already gone to a doctor. It doesn't really matter. And said, would you all pray for me? And so we poured enough oil on her through this. She lived another 20 years. Died just a few years ago. We'd pour oil on her and, and, uh, and pray for her. And she'd get up and keep on trucking. So I know that God hears and answers prayer. I know that. But we have to do it in accordance with His guidelines. He is the one. Just any old body can pray and can talk all they want to, but God has no responsibility to answer or even hear them. Then I think the other that so I think faith that you start with boldness, then then faith has to be put in there, the confidence that God's going to hear and do what you've asked Him to do. The next one is persistence, and I don't really understand this, but I know the Bible teaches it: being persistent in prayer, and it's best illustrated in the Old Testament. One of the places that we enjoy going when we visit Israel is on Mount Carmel. On Mount Carmel is where Elijah went, you know, and had that contest with the prophets of Baal. And they'd had a horrible drought for years. And, uh, and, and, and after he had whooped up on the prophets of Baal, why he told his servant, he said, and you're way up on the hill, and he said, go look to the west. Now, up on that mountain, if you look for the west, the only thing you can really see is some uh, uh, little plains and then the Mediterranean Sea. And all the water comes from the Mediterranean in on Israel, comes from, just like here, comes from the northwest. It comes from the northwest end and gives them rain. And, he, and the guy came back and he said, I didn't see anything. Go back and look again. He, and I didn't see anything. Go back and look again. Persistence, you see, he was, Elijah was persistent. Go back. And finally he came back and he said, by the way, did you see anything? Yeah, he said, yeah. I said, I saw a cloud about the size of man's hand. That's not very impressive. Elijah said, you tell everybody to get the heck out of here, off of this hill and head back home because it's going to rain like you ain't never seen before. Actually, there, uh, Ahab, well, the king, was there, and, and he had his uh, chariots that he rode on. And, and before they got back home, that chariot bogged down the mud. So what he's saying here, you persist in prayer if you know it's the will of God. There was an interesting book written many years ago by a, a godly man named Francis Schaeffer. Dr. Schaefer wrote several books, but the one that I was particularly impressed with was on the book of Joshua. And in it, he talks about the flow of the will of God, the flow of the will of God. And what he was saying is, if you want a prayer answered, you move into the direction God wants to go, and then he, when you see needs that he, God will answer that prayer because you're helping him accomplish his will. 
Now, the alternative to that is to get what you want in a selfish way, and, 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 and that may be outside the will of God. And now you're asking God to do something that isn't according to his will. And even Jesus avoided that. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thine be done, was the, was the direction he came. But the point here is that, that be persistent in the things that you know will honor God and ask him. So it's boldness, faith, and persistence, and then earnestness. And this is going to Jesus. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Mark, or the book of Luke, rather, uh, Jesus is in prayer before he was arrested. He's in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Eden, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying there. He'd ask his apostles, he said, would you come and pray? And he picked two or three of them, and he said, would you come and pray with me? And you know what happened? They all went to sleep. He came back kind of frustrated with him, and he said, you can't just stay awake for a little while. And, and, and when Jesus was praying there, knowing very well that Judas had, had already been dismissed from the supper table, and he had gone to, to make his deal with the, uh, uh, with the police, uh, the temple police, to come and arrest Jesus. And, and, and it says there that Jesus was praying with such earnestness and that's the word that's used here the word earnestness was that with that the sweat was dropping from his brow as though they were great drops of blood like if you had a cut or a bloody nose you know and i looked up i was looking up in uh, in in scripture or reference books that i have vine's dictionary of new testament words gives us clear explanations and when I, I was trying to what does this earnestness mean we don't use that word very often and when I got through studying it looked like uh, the the word that re, that we would use today that best indicates that real meaning is the word intensity he was more intense now during basketball season that makes sense to me because you know it is the team that plays with intensity that usually upsets a better team or is hard to beat. Our Kentucky team had one person playing with intensity, and they didn't do so well. Intensity, our coach told us, he said, what you want to do is you want, you want the, if you're, playing off, if you're playing defense, you want the offense to have to react to you instead of you reacting to them. Put the pressure on them so they have to react to you, and then you're in control. Jesus was under pressure from the devil himself to back out, which would, and, and he had a, we would never have been saved. He was under intense pressure, and with great intensity, he prayed that his Father's will would have been accomplished because he didn't have to do that. He had available to him by his own testimony that he could have called down 10,000 of, of God's warriors to have gotten him out of that mess. But he didn't. He stayed put. In the fifth chapter of the book of James, where we had referred to a while ago, talking about calling the elders of the church, well, here he talks about righteousness. Prayer of the righteous. Who are these righteous people? Because he said that the prayer of the righteous will accomplish a lot. That's in the 16th verse of the, of the, uh, of the uh, <clears throat> fifth chapter of James. So we've got boldness, we have faith, we have persistence, we have earnestness, we have righteousness. Now, the other thing that we have to keep in mind is this. God not only hears our words, he looks at the intents and the thoughts of the heart. 
So it isn't just the words. If the words of your mouth do not accurately afflict, uh, <coughs> excuse me, reflect the condition and the intents of the heart, you're a hypocrite. And God looks upon that as something to be ignored. So when he's here in the fourth chapter, verse 3, he says, in, in the book of James, he says, And when you ask and you, and you don't receive, it's because you ask with the wrong motives. Because what you're going to ask for, you're going to spend on your own pleasures. <coughs> Excuse me. I hope that woke you up. So we have, have these things. You have boldness, you have faith, you have persistence, you have earnestness or intensity, you have righteousness, and you have the right motives. So we have to ask ourselves, are we seeking our will or God's will? That's getting back into the flow of what God wants. Because we ask a lot out of selfish motives, you know. We want more money, we want nicer cars, we want prettier houses, uh, all that kind of stuff, that even if you had it, it doesn't affect God's will one way or the other. Now, you have those who, who are saying God wants everybody to be uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. They're false teachers. Write them off. Write them off. That's a lot of baloney. Now, so what happens, this thing here, I had to take my coat off last night. I'll do it again because you can see my muscles. Both of them. Um, so what happens if God grants your desire even though it isn't his will? And there's actually an incident in Scripture where this happens to teach us how we should avoid that if possible. What happens if God grants somebody, and this is in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, the 20th chapter, it is a situation, Hezekiah was the king over Israel. And by the way, he was a good king. They didn't have many. And, and, the, and the prophet, the palace prophet was the great Isaiah. And God said to Isaiah, Isaiah, you go to Hezekiah and you tell him, get your things in order, you're going to die. And um, time out. Stand up. All right. Get ready. One, two, three, holler, hallelujah. One, two, three, hallelujah. <laughs> Sit down. Okay. Spring is here, folks. Spring is here. Yeah. Spring is here. All right. Anyway, back to Hezekiah and Isaiah. Isaiah goes to the king, and he says to, to the king, Get your things in order, you're about to die. And Hezekiah broke down in tears and just had a hissy fit. And he said, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. God said to, to Isaiah, you go tell him, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. But it's not the best. It isn't the best thing. He lived 15 more years. His wife had a baby. They named that baby Manasseh. He was the worst king in the history of Israel. If, I, if Hezekiah had gone ahead and, and, and gone to be with God, Manasseh would have never been born, and Israel would never have suffered to the degree that they did. 
this is included in Scripture so that we can understand. It ain't a good thing to pray outside the will of God just because you're selfish physical wants and desires. Now, one of the things that you need to know, because I've said, look, God doesn't hear all prayers that people offer just because they want to pray. He chooses to have guidelines. So I asked you this question. Be interesting to see what you think. Does God have a gatekeeper? Does God have a gatekeeper? Now, you know what a gatekeeper is? I'll tell you. I'm assuming you, three or four of you might. In Matthew's business, before he tried to play lawyer, and now he's playing preacher for a while, before that happened, his job was to raise money for ADF. This is a bunch of lawyers who go and, and defend uh, people who are standing up for, for biblical truth uh, pro bono, which means they don't have to pay for it. And so... He was, he was raising, they, were, they raised about $60 million a year. And uh, I could get by on that if I didn't tip too heavy. But they, that's, that's what they raised a year. And, uh, and, and he, so Matthew would go to the wealthiest people. There, one of them was the guy who has this mattress thing that's on television all the time. And, another, and, and they give a, a million dollars a pop. But most of the time, you cannot go. And we've had three billionaires that I know of here in Ohio. One of them is the guy that, that provides the t uh, cloth and suits and so on for people who work um, in garages and so on and so forth. You see the truck going around out of Cincinnati. Actually, he lives in Florida, but you can't get to talk to him. He has assigned someone that if you want to ask for funds, you have to go through him in order to to get the money from the guy who owns it, who's a billionaire. The guy that you have to go through is called a gatekeeper. And so you have to go get to, if you can't get through the gate, <laughs> you can't get to the money. And he's called, now, so my question is this. Does God have a gatekeeper? And if so, who is he? Because we need to get to know that bird. And the answer to that is in the, in the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter, or 14th chapter. And it's actually, it's pretty clear. In this 14th chapter, I'm in the book of Acts, that's not the right one. In the, in the 14th chapter of John, in verse 6, I just will read uh, just this short passage, just start to verse 5, because... Thomas is asking him a question, and, 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 and Jesus has told him the way to salvation. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, the next verse, listen carefully. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is he a gatekeeper? And if he is God's gatekeeper, and you want access to God, you better get to know Jesus. You better get to know Jesus, because God has no, no obligation whatsoever to pay any attention to your talk, whether you call it a prayer or not. He has no responsibility to react to anything unless you go through Jesus. I'll get you. So, 
so God does have a gatekeeper here, and you need to know who it is. And God uses that gatekeeper. If you look carefully over in the book, and, and what I've tried to do here that's taken a lot of time, and sometimes it's boring and all that kind of stuff, but what I've tried to do here that I think is really important is to say, what I'm telling you, even though I know it isn't popular, is what the Bible teaches. My job is to teach you what the Bible says, and this is the Word of God and the will of God, and what the world says about it, you just ignore. Because I, I would rather put my faith in the God who created heaven and earth than uh, some of these turkeys that run around here. Here's what it says in, in, in the writer of Hebrews says, verse 25. Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Is he a gatekeeper? Because he always lives to intercede for us. So the access to God is totally through Jesus Christ. Totally, completely, and only through Jesus Christ. Now the world hates to hear that. They call us narrow-minded, bigots, arrogant, blah, blah, blah. We can't help what God has established. He said, you want to get to me, you go through Jesus. There's salvation in no other. So that raises an interesting question. I'm a wicked guy. I'm not a Christian. Is there a prayer that I can offer that God will listen to? Answer? Yeah. By the way, I think, Gary, I hate to say this for your sake, but I think this microphone's a Democrat. I really do. <laughs> anyway, can a, <laughs> can a wicked person, a person who isn't a Christian, separated from God through sin, can that person pray a prayer that God will pay any attention to? Answer is, yeah, there's one, just one, just one. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. And then what happens? He has then specific guidelines that he says he wants this guy to do to be adopted into his family. I want you to confess that you're a sinner, which you've just done. I want you to repent of your sins. What's the word repent mean? It's a military term. I'm walking in this direction, and the, and the sergeant says, about face. You go away, and now we're going in the direction of the flow of the will of God. And then, he's, and then in the third chapter of John, John uses this. He said, he, he uses another term about birth. He says, you want, you've been born into this world. Now I want you to be born into the kingdom of God. And he uses baptism as the picture of that birth. What happens in, in, in baptism? The old dead body is buried. He's a goner. Or, if it's a new birth, the baptism represents the bursting of the water of the womb and the delivery of new life in Christ Jesus. 
Both of those, both the burial and the birth, are used as baptism is a description. That what happens to the old man of sin? He's dead and gone. Sixth chapter of Romans. He's buried, he's dead and gone. And the bursting of the water of the womb delivers new life. You are a new, when you come to Jesus, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old man that you were, God doesn't even recognize and acknowledge anymore. He now has adopted you into his family. You are born again into the family of God, and God has a tendency to listen to his children. If you're here, and you've never, ever repented of your sins and gone to the gatekeeper of Jesus, you need to do it now. We used to have a hymn of invitation, and we'd invite you down. Well, we're not singing one. We're offering you one. I'll be standing right here. And I can tell you in just a few words how you can guarantee that God will hear your prayer. It's easy to do. Lord, bless this gathering of people. We thank you for a, a spring year, and, and we're just grateful for your continued blessing. We pray if there's anybody here isn't, who isn't absolutely certain they're going to go to heaven when they die, that they'll come forward and let me give them that blessed assurance, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through whom we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.